I think I got the closest I've ever been to getting grounded from pro wrestling as an adult. I explained to Spencer why Junkyard Dog's head was hard, and she got very upset. <laughs> well, oh, so, so what I talked about on the Bobo Brazil episode? So I'm grounded with you? like, And then we're going to talk about again for most of this episode? Like, So are you and me just going to sit at the edge of your bed and just get scolded by Spencer? Is that what's going to happen? <laughs> Because she saw Junkyard Dog on all fours doing, like, the little mini headbutt. And she's like, why would that hurt? And I was like, let me tell you. Did you have that smile on your face? Like, <laughs> let me tell you. I know the answer. And then you're like, I wish I was ignorant as well as the people who thought this was a good idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> See, oh. but you know what all this is? is going to end up on an episode of Mixer somehow. So, you know what? <laughs> all you are is a catalyst and a muse. So that's all of this is. Just you uh, wait until I sit down and watch WrestleMania 7 with my Iraqi girlfriend. Wait till that day comes. <laughs> like, I've already prepped her on it, and she's already horrified of what happens. <laughs> but somehow uh, the fact that Sergeant Slaughter actually didn't serve in our armed forces is probably the thing that's most upsetting to me about that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> just something I just found out. You're just mad at the business, Jake? Don't be mad at the business. I, I mean, you already are mad at the yeah, business, right? Listen, we, we, we can talk about our ups and downs. <laughs> We should do a podcast about the dying of my love of professional <laughs> wrestling. Ooh. This is 10 Bell Pod. I'm Nick. And if you watch a wrestling program you fundamentally disagree with just to complain about it, you might be part of the page marquee. You were one fucking joke. You, you, you have, you're like, you're like, oh, I'm gonna get patriarchy over, and then like, I'll write one joke, and then say it on a podcast, and that shit's gonna be over. If you always comment about the weight of a female wrestler, you might be in the patriarchy. If you, go, you only have black t-shirts in your closet, <laughs> <laughs> you might be part of the patriarchy. Oh my god, I'm part of the patriarchy. Alright, I am joined, as always, by a guy who thinks Vince McMahon buying WCW was the worst thing that happened in 2001. Michael Loving. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do a bit. Your fucking joke threw me off. Alright, <laughs> prediction number three, because this is a dumb, stupid bit we're going to keep up. When this episode is released, the Irishman will have won special effects. Parasite will have won Best Picture, and Parasite will have won Best Film Editing. And now you're wondering why I'm predicting three particular odd choices for predictions for the Oscars. It's because I put $27 on every bet, all oh. of them at plus odds, two of them at close to four to one. So hopefully Parasite, Boong John ho one of the best goddamn directors working today, had cleaned up at the Oscars and I got a cool little bit amount of money. Probably going to lose, but there we go. There's my predictions. And of course, we are joined by, this is going to be so dumb. <laughs> I can't do it. Thank God the other ones weren't. <laughs> Here we go. He's hiked for miles on a trail of anger. He slept for nights inside a tent of danger. His sash of badges is too much to shoulder. A place where no one camps, but he he cramps alone. The man scout Jake Maddy. <laughs> Christ, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm really. Gonna... I can't. I just. I. I. I, I, I give him really, uh, uh, claps. Give him claps. That's all clap. you can do right now. That's all you can do right now. That's. Uh, that's all you can fucking do right now. I'm speechless. How many times did you rehearse that, Nick? 
that was it. I just I <laughs> yeah. Wrote it. One, I wrote Ed Wood, it. Ed Wooden, this motherfucker. Why one you, take, one take, baby. Why do you think you only had one patriarchy joke? Like, that's <laughs> like, yeah, work on that. That's I gotta like, get shit done. Spencer's gonna yell at me more. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It is time to G R A B T H E M C A K E S because today we are discussing one of the most popular, most charismatic wrestlers to ever do it: Junkyard Dog. 340 pounds of nothing but frustration with no humiliation. I'm going to hit you with the four sisters of Thump Street and you ain't going to wake up. (laughs) Sylvester Ritter was born December 13th, 1952 in Wadesboro, North Carolina. So there's not much out there on Ritter's early days, his childhood, but he did go on to play football at Fayetteville State University in North Carolina. Nick, I also heard that he played for the Green Bay Packers and won MVP, maybe, and maybe even won a couple Super Bowls. Is that true? (laughs) No. Fuck this. There is no record of a Sylvester Ritter in the NFL, nothing on NFL.com, nothing on football database, but the most damning evidence is that Jim Ross called a JYD match in WCW and only brought up Fayetteville State. Jim Ross has never, ever missed a chance to put over someone's mediocre football career. So, (laughs) in conclusion, good night, Hulkamaniacs and jabroni marks without a life that don't know a work when you work, work, and work yourself into a shoot, marks. (laughs) I even found a uh, newspaper clipping that said that uh, basically JYD had a tryout with the Oilers. Meltzer said that he got drafted in the 12th round of the 1975 draft. That's bullshit. I looked that up. Meltzer's off on that. And then apparently he got cut from the Oilers and then he got a tryout the next year with the Packers, but apparently injured himself too. But I mean, getting to that level is still badass, but it's just more propaganda from Big Doug. WWE wrestling. Yeah, just like uh, the fact that Leon White uh, was on the Super Bowl team for the Exactly. Rams. So, there you go. Ernie Ladd's the only one that's the real deal. Yeah, Holyfield. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and don't even get me started about Ernie Ladd. <laughs> There's a really good, uh, Dave Mutzler put out a book, it's a hardcover book called Tributes that I bought for this. It's got a great damn obituary right up. Uh, Wait a minute, where the fuck did you buy that book? Not where you wanted me to. Motherfucker. <laughs> If you bought that fucking tributes book from any place other than highspots.com, I'm going to murder you. Would you is it like, on eBay? Because I bought it off eBay. Yeah, it's on. It, yeah, it's fucking on <laughs> eBay. Okay, it's on everything. So I could have gotten it from you through eBay. That's what I'm saying. Every, every fucking like store that's available on highspots.com sells tributes books. So I'll tell you why I'm so fucking frustrated. Because in the early days of highspots.com, Michael Bacchicchio, the owner of High Spots, had an opportunity to buy books by the pound. They it, do that at Goodwill. Yeah, but he <laughs> he bought at some sort of sale in Canada. It included like Dynamite Kids, Pure Dynamite, Tributes, a multitude of other books as well. But mostly, it was mostly just Tributes books. Yeah. He thought it would just be like a few pallets. It showed up to his house when he was running a high spots out of his house. <laughs> and he showed up with a semi truck full of oh. books because he did not recognize how many pounds that was. <laughs> right. And so he then had to get this truck driver who drove from Canada, who just wanted to drop this shit off at a warehouse and then, sh- and then showed up at somebody's fucking house. So then while this truck driver is just sitting in his driveway, Michael Bakiku had to then go hurry up, go to a storage 
unit place and be like, hey, I need a storage yeah. unit. And they go, when do you need it? Now. now. <laughs> and then made that driver who had drove from Canada wait while he did all this, sign up for a storage unit, drop all this off, and unload pallets upon pallets upon pallets of tributes books, which for the longest time we used to have a wrestling ring in the high spots office sitting in the back where we'd have our training school and underneath that wrestling ring which is an 18 by 18 there's a little room where you can slide stuff underneath that's about uh three foot tall so we had a 18 by 18 square that was filled underneath three feet tall stacked up of tributes books well and at one point in time like we didn't have like cinder blocks to put our trailers uh, on stuff <laughs> and grab some books we just like grab some tributes books and we'll set the fucking ring trailer on top of these tributes books like that's how disposable we're out of plates <laughs> fucking tribute <laughs> tributes books to me are like fucking tribbles so if you got that Start, end of the place dude. you are you are not a friend of mine and you have not helped the cause of getting rid of these tributes books we still have a shit ton of them so in that tribute book uh Meltzer's uh tribute to JYD it, it's 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 truly fantastic. I learned so much little things that I peppered in through my research. Like I said, his Oilers thing is incorrect unless he's misremembering or getting the exacts wrong. But Metzler said that JYD actually worked as a sheriff deputy for Mecklenburg County. Did you, Jake, you ever hear anything like that? Nick, did you come across anything like that anywhere else? No. Yeah. It, it, who knows if it's true, but he was saying that the uh, Mecklenburg Sheriff Department used to have like kind of their own shoot wrestling matches. And apparently JYD was the one that beat everybody and a fellow deputy or friend, I forget the exact connection, then was the one who told him about Sonny King and Sonny King became JYD's main trainer. The the sheriff deputy thing and all this, I, I'm not too sure if that's real deal. If anybody knows for sure in the Charlotte area, I figure it's got to come up. It's like, yeah, JYD busted me for public intoxication or something. Let us know. But I, I'm kind of doubting Metzler's shit on this one. But yeah, Sonny King, baby. I fucking love Sonny King. He's amazing, man. Oh, going through old Memphis tapes, like Sonny King is the fucking man. And Lance Russell tells this amazing story about about Sonny King, who wrestled in the Memphis Territory, and obviously Lance Russell, a longtime announcer in the Memphis Territory. And if you remember, there was this big inner promotional war between the Pafos, who were regarded as this outlaw promotion, when really <laughs> yep. they're just, you know, free market enterprise starting up in the same area as the Memphis Territory, and they're very particular of the area. But what they would do when the Memphis promotion, Continental Wrestling Alliance, would show up to Louisville. The, the Pafos would show up and, and cause shit and some of the other like wrestlers that wrestled for the Pafo family would show up and kind of like start shit and it'd be kind of hairy and they would try to rile up the crowd and then yeah. they were, there's always this worry that they might attack you in the parking lot because that's <laughs> that's what Macho Man did he like basically like tried to attack Bill Dundee mm. in a parking lot mm-hmm. outside of a gym yeah. so there was like all this fear and Lance Russell of course just announcer he's worried he's gonna get beat up and Sonny King just calmly walks over Lance Russell and he goes stick with me Lance and I'll get you across the parkway <laughs> like just <laughs> like, just, a, like a fucking action movie <laughs> like a fucking action movie and Lance Russell just says he goes I've never felt safer before in my entire <laughs> life when Sonny King's like 
I'll, I'll take care of you across the parkway. Stick with me, kid. Stick with me. So, like, just how much of a badass Sonny King is just not unafraid of Macho Man or the fucking genius doing cartwheels over in the fucking corner <laughs> while Angelo Poffo is doing a million fucking setups. He's like, bring it, motherfucker. I mean, he shouldn't. I looked at he was a pro boxer for a while. And this is another thing. It's another thing. Ernie Ladd turned Sonny King into pro wrestling. So it's like, Ernie Ladd is the Illuminati because that motherfucker <laughs> has his hands into everything that has ever occurred. I have indoctrinated every <laughs> African-American wrestler. And they have been brought in by the one, the only, the big cat on your lad. I have busted my foot off in all of their asses to indoctrinate them into the greatest sport that is ruled by one, the only, the big cat on your lad. After getting trained by Sonny in early 77, using his real name, Sylvester Redder, debuted in the Memphis Territory Continental Wrestling Association, working for Jerry Jarrett. By the start of 78, JYD had moved to Nick Gulas's NWA Mid-America, also ran out of Tennessee, where he used the name Leroy Rochester. This was like during the time when the split happened. Because a long time, Nick Goulas ran mm. Memphis and all of Nashville right. and, and that whole area. But then, of course, Nick got his son, George, involved in wrestling. And a lot of the wrestlers resented that, didn't like that. I mean, there's even the, the classic story of George Goulas basically just fucking up an entire match and, and guys just beating the shit out of him. And George <laughs> is just like, Daddy said you go down. And all the wrestlers resented that. And there was kind of that split in the Memphis territory. And, and some of them went off with Jerry Jarrett and uh, Jerry the King Lawler. And, and they kind of split off. And then, of course, Nick's promotion went down and slowly over time just kind of faded away. And then Jarrett took over that same area shortly thereafter. But it is funny that he went from Jarrett, who would actually end up winning the war of, of the Memphis Territory, <laughs> right, and be like, right. let me go to this losing uh, battle over here. <laughs> so, I mean... It's like Bret Hart. It, it would have been... It might have, <laughs> yeah, it might have been a different uh, different outcome. And if he would have stayed, I mean, yeah. he, he could have ended up being a big star out of Memphis as opposed to Mid-South. Or he would have ended up in Mid-South when they did a talent exchange, for all we know. All roads lead to Bill Watts, is what I'm saying. And also significant, he... Uh, JYD is known for being a super over baby face, but at this time he was working as a heel. After another solid year in Tennessee, Leroy would change his name to Big Daddy Ritter and kick off 1979 in Canada working in Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling. Big Daddy Ritter would become a two-time North American champion, all while facing the likes of Larry Lane, Jim Neidhart, and having his biggest rivalry with Jake Roberts, I assume, over drugs. Well, that's not that's not kind at all, yeah. especially since I believe. Why are we burying people? Yeah, I, why, <laughs> why why are you doing that? <laughs> especially since like like there's far more better things to talk about. The fact that they had like one of the earliest ladder matches. Right, going to get into that. Yeah, it was Big Daddy Ritter versus Jake Lee Roberts in a ladder match, which it's like it's not like a tower. It's or, yeah, yeah, where yeah. What are those type of ladders? I, I tried to think how to fucking describe it, and I can't, you know, it's how, like a tower. It's like a you know. Yeah, well, instead of like having a Eiffel ladder tower, no, instead of having like a, a ladder that's like in a V shape, it's just like the, a ladder you'd lean up against the house. Exactly, and that's what they had for a ladder exactly. match, and they just had that set up. They're just the leaning it up against the infrastructure of the venue. Yeah, like the, <laughs> like the, like the support beams in the yes. ceiling. They just like lean that up. So basically, if you want to, instead of like 
pushing a ladder down and somebody taking a nice safe bump into the yeah. ropes or into the ring, you could just like kick the bottom of it and they would just like <laughs> fall right on top of the ladder. And, and the only way you're kind of even staying up is because the ref has to hold on to it the entire damn time. They didn't think it all the way through. I give them for our ingenuity, but they didn't think it all the way through. There was actually, I did the research on that because I got into this nerd shit of like, is this really the first ladder match? Because it's on the WWE three disc ladder set. But apparently Stampede had done one earlier, I think it was 1972. Dan Crawford and Tor Kamada did one in Stampede. There's no footage of that one. But uh, yeah, the Jake the Snake JYD, and we need to put it over, JYD wins. So JYD won a ladder match in for a while, which was the best ladder match ever. By the end of 79, Ritter would go to the place that would make him a megastar deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back in the woods amongst the Evergreens, Mid-South Wrestling. Yeah. There, Bill Watts would give him a new name, and after explaining to Bill that you can't call people that, they settled on Junkyard Dog, Mortal Enemy of Heathcliff the Cat. And if you're playing the drinking game of listening to all our episodes and taking a drink every time Nick makes a Bill Watts racist joke, you're probably pretty fucking hammered by now. <laughs> And I would also like to point out Mid-South, uh, just for anybody just learning, uh, that included Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, and parts of Texas. If you've only seen JYD in the WWF, let's say during his fluffier days, you might not know that in Mid-South, JYD was jacked as fuck. That paired with JYD's cool-ass voice, his overwhelming charisma, would soon make Junkyard Dog an icon. Terry Taylor talked about how he would be on a card with JYD. Terry Taylor's on the very first match, and the crowd's already chanting, JYD, JYD, JYD. And that, you know, that's two and a half hours away from when the dog <laughs> even got in the ring. Everybody's screaming, and just over and over, it's like, I'm fucking trying to get over too, guys. <laughs> Jesus, help me out. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about guys that have been super over and, like, certain regions dusty roads in florida we've talked about like several other people like oh it doesn't get much hotter than this in this particular geographic location junkyard dog in mid-south like that's that's a level of of being over that you know, people still talk about you know you know when you talk about rock and roll express it and crockett and right mid 80s junkyard dog in mid-south in the 80s it doesn't get much hotter than that i mean it's white hot unbelievable old timers still talk about it and vision it like i said something like terry taylor talking about how over they were and just change the whole complexion of the whole territory I mean, they, they would talk about JYD and that things like he just was he wasn't just an over baby face. He was a folk hero. I don't know the exact year, but it was JYD got the most popular athlete in all of the state of Louisiana. Archie Manning, who was the number one football player, um, Pistol Pete, he was the number one basketball player, and JYD was still the most popular and most well-known and most loved. It was insane to hear how over he was. Pistol Pete is the reason I wore number 44 in basketball. Right away, JYD would have matches against Gino Hernandez, Bob Sweeten, and would even beat Ernie Ladd for Ernie Ladd's Mid-South Louisiana title of Ernie Ladd. Also, to start Mid-South, he was actually a heel with Gino Hernandez. They were together for about three or four months. Apparently, there was an abusive relationship between them where Gino would sometimes smack JYD, but when JYD finally caught Gino's hand, turned him heel, Gino jumped with Ernie Ladd, and uh, JYD making a save for Buck Robley against the Freebirds at one point. It just, that was what really pushed Dog into the face status 
rather than coming in as a heel. Also, I should jump in just because uh, I'm a wrestler and I sit here and I know the answer. It's a sweet tan, um, but fuck him. He's a piece of human garbage, so you can fuck <laughs> up his name all you want. <laughs> 1980 would be the year that JYD would begin the feud that would change his career forever against Buddy Roberts, Terry Gordy, and Doc P.S. Hendricks, the fabulous Freebirds. You mean the guys that had the Confederate flag on all their gear? You mean those guys? (laughs) Man, I just, I don't. I don't see how you would put the Freebirds against JYD. I don't. I don't know why that would just. As far as like creating conflict in professional wrestling, I don't see why that would be an issue. Who's booking this again? Yeah, what's going on? Here? <laughs> where are we at again? Are, are we are we in Columbus, Ohio? Is that where this is this is taking place? Like, where where are we talking about here? Geographically. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I mean, Bill Watts for his uh, genius mixed with his faults uh created one of the hottest angles the south had ever or probably will ever fucking see um he apparently uh stole it from an angle in los angeles in 1971 with freddie blassie and john tolis i didn't get who blinded who but apparently went over big but yeah uh mid-june 1980 jyd and buck robley and the Freebirds were involved in a match where if you lost the match you would get your hair i don't know if it was shaved or cut off but uh Michael Hayes had some hair cream that would easily take it off. The Freebirds win the match, so it's time for Buck Robley to lose his hair. JYD steps in. Michael Hayes has the hair cream. He rubs it into JYD's eyes, and JYD's selling on this is fucking incredible. It's that that legit panic when you're hurt so much, you just writhe around and flip around, and you just can't control your body. And I can understand how this crowd thought that JYD was legitimately getting blinded. Cause he sells it so fucking good. The pain you feel watching it—it's—it's—it's it's, it's that stuff where you're a smart mark and you're watching you're like, oh, is he—is he okay? Yeah, duh, he's okay. But is he okay? It's—it's it's beautiful. Well, I just—I just love the the whole freebird hair cream thing. I mean, they did that in World Class, and yeah. it got rubbed on Buddy Roberts' hair. And I, I think it's a genius idea as opposed to having to get some actual like hair trimmers that have to be plugged into a wall because you can't get the battery operated ones because after you've had it like <laughs> we'll a match. We'll just get some cream. Yeah. It just, we'll just put some cream on it here and then he'll run away. And then next time you see him on TV, he could have like a bald head, but he's wearing a wig. And they did that right. a lot with, with Buddy. But, you know, just the idea that you put the hair cream on, it's like nair and it takes it away. But if you get it in your eyes, it blinds you. Yeah, it's serious. This, it's this mysterious stuff. It's it's like ooze from the Ninja Turtles yeah, uh, yeah, uh, cartoon yeah. comic book. You don't the really black stuff from the X Files. Yeah, you don't really <laughs> know what its properties are, what no. it does do, what it doesn't do. You can fa- play fast and loose with it, much like the Force in the Star Wars movies. We don't really know what it's the Force does. It's a miracle elixir. Yeah, yeah, it, it, just, <laughs> it does whatever serves the story best, and yep. that's basically what the Freebirds hair cream is. It's like the Force in the Star Wars movies. There's footage of this on YouTube, so I suggest you go look it up. For a while, it wasn't even found. There's not too much of the aftermath, which killed me because I did a lot of looking. But uh, there's some good YouTube comments by this Rob D posted how he watched it all. And segments weeks after with JYD getting blinded because he had to get escorted out through the whole thing and the crowd just shut down. But apparently the Freebirds would come out with walking canes and sunglasses and act all blind and shit. I mean, just amping the heat up to the the murderous degree. But the big tip on this feud, which really got it furious, is shoot-wise, JYD's wife gave birth to his daughter, LaToya. 
So Bill Watts was good at making real life into a kayfabe because he knew people knew and it just added to that reality. And it turned into the whole JYD's blind. He couldn't even see the birth of his own daughter because that piece of shit Michael Hayes blinded him with that mysterious hair cream. It's that type of heat that you just like... You have a kid, you understand it, you just like, he didn't get to see his own daughter, that motherfucker. And they even forced JYD to stay in his house. He couldn't leave his house to sell his blind angle. Fans would mail in fucking money for JYD's eye surgery. They said it was uh, like $5 at a time, $608 a week. Lord knows where the money went. You'd get actual sports section news articles saying the Baltimore Eye Clinic revealed no permanent eye damage. It was just, it was insane the amount of just rage and attention this got. Michael Hayes talked about it. He said car windows would get bashed in. This is my favorite. Water pistols filled with liquid plumber were shot at them during the feud. They had to park at uh, sheriff departments and then the sheriff would escort them to the civic center. One dude pulled a gun on Michael Hayes said, I got you back, JYD. It, it was this type of stuff you hear about where crowds like, oh, he stabbed a guy because he thought it was real. But you hear so many angles to this angle and how well it went over and how ferocious everyone was and how hurt everyone was about what the Freebirds did to their hero, JYD. It just it amped it up to a fucking bonkers degree. The feud would more or less end that August at Mid-South Superdome Extravaganza with JYD beating Michael Hayes in a dog collar steel cage match. This is another one. It's You hear about all this heat. You want to see them finally clash. And there's I, if somebody has footage, if somebody knows where the footage is of all my avenues and resources, I couldn't find anything. There's so much stuff like 80 and then early 81 of Mid-South that I just couldn't find barely any footage of just like the prime JYD stuff. And it hurts because I want to see this cage match so bad. Apparently Drew like 30,000 plus. I mean, the whole angle is JYD wanted to be in a dog collar match even though he was still blind, but because he was chained to Michael Hayes, he could still find him, feel him, and beat his ass. So he he had a connection to the man that destroyed his life and didn't let him see his own damn daughter. Um, also, as interesting as around these territory days, they did this angle in Mid-South, but then in the spring of 81, basically less than a year later, they did the same angle in Georgia. This time it was Tommy Rich and JYD against the Freebirds. This time they only blinded one of the dog's eyes, so he walked around with an eye patch because he looked cool as shit like a pirate. But it, it's interesting. I was like, oh, we'll just move a different territory, do the same angle that crushed, and it'll get over. Obviously, not as much, but it was still like, eh, do it again. It worked. Let's do it again. Yeah, because that's what you do. It's, yeah. Uh, you kind of open mic it here. This works. <laughs> take it yeah, around right? here. And then you, also, too, as a booker, you're like, oh, I heard this worked really well over here. I mean, they did a blinding angle in world class with Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. Oh, I didn't know that. So, one. like, oh. yeah, like they. If something works, was that hair cream? Do you know what that was? Uh, it was some sort of black powder or something like that. It was just like we just need to blind them. Yeah, yeah, you know, the idea of blinding somebody of some sort of mysterious substance that we can <laughs> just like have it do whatever we want. With the Freebirds more or less behind them, JYD would get into tag team feuds using various partners against Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown. He'd even win the tag team titles, most notably with Dick Murdoch and Mr. Olympia. Speaking of tag teams, he'd link up with Ted DiBiase well before he came into wealth. 
JYD and Ted were good friends in real life. They wrote together a lot. JYD was even the best man at Ted's wedding. But during the summer of 82, Ted DiBiase would turn on the dog. So there's a whole thing where JYD and DiBiase are good friends. Real life and both faces in Mid-South. There was a whole deal where Bob Roop had won the title off of DiBiase, but it was shitty mean. So then JYD beat Roop. But then DiBiase still had a rematch clause in his old contract, so it came to be that two friends, the man, like Nick said, was best man at his wedding, in which they talked about on air, was going to have to face him for the title. And it was like, well, I got to feed my kids. This is a competition between two people. We're going to have a good, upstanding, business-is-business gentleman match. And they faced off. It, It goes down. It's one of the best heel turns. They wrestle a good scientific match. Everything is cool. At the very end... DiBiase loads his glove and one punch KOs the shit out of JYD, who drops. I gotta give him, I'm a big MMA dude, and the way JYD drops from DiBiase's punch looks like a good slow motion, stiff, fall on your face plant KO. And this would this was what turned Ted into the biggest heel in all of Mid South, and which yet again got people behind JYD so damn hardcore. Their feud led to a loser leaves town for 90 days match on an October 30th, 82 episode of Mid-South where Ted and Matt Bourne beat JYD and Mr. Olympia. I watched the entire episode. It's kind of at the beginning of the match. Uh, I forget the commentator from Mid-South that's with Bill Watts, but they're talking up the card and they're in the crowd and there's a, you know, like a promotional fun, fun guy in a gorilla costume that's out there interacting with fans taking pictures and then at the end of the end of the tag match this gorilla shows up again beats the shit out of everybody rips his mask off and oh my god it's hacksaw jim duggan or as they say dugan dugan uh spears him they they cost the match and dugan joins uh born and dibiase to form the rat pack and yet again jyd is screwed over but the whole secret oh it's a gorilla nope it's hacksaw jim duggan it's it's some good stuff that Nitro and TNA and People Forever would rip off. Not long after JYD had to leave Mid-South, a man physically resembling JYD showed up to Mid-South going by the name of Stagger Lee, with Stagger being Bill Watts' second favorite word ending in G-G-E-R. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't have gone there, but if you want to go there, oh. you just did. Uh, of course, uh, it's funny that you, you made a Bill Watts joke about Staggerly, a match that I always bring up till, till the end of time is with Bill Watts tagging with Staggerly against the Midnight Express. It, it is a match that I bring up with students all the fucking time. Oh, I, bring, really? I bring, Yeah, because you have the Midnight Express. Yeah. At this time, at the peak of their powers, they can do... This is Eaton and Cordry, right? Yes. Or, yeah. They can do all kinds of just high spots, unbelievable, revolutionary tag team, but they are, are facing Staggerly and Bill Watts, and all they do for like the first five minutes of the match is just eat punches. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the bumping in which Bobby Eaton executes off of each one of these punches gets more of an escalation and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that Bill Watts is standing in the ring and punches Bobby Eaton and Bobby Eaton is able to sell in such a believable way enough but over top way enough that he ends up going over the top rope down to the floor but the idea they just keep bumping these guys boom 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 and the the escalation of the bumps 
is unbelievable. You just have Bill Watts and Stagger Lee standing in the middle of the ring while one of the greatest tag teams of all time are just bouncing around like ping pong balls for these guys. And I keep telling guys, like, they, they did this with a punch. And <laughs> right. Bobby Eaton made this sequence something fucking special and all these guys are doing is just merely blowing on them (laughs) and they're just over the top selling of it and if you want to talk about angles that are repeated the idea of somebody uh, losing loser leave town match and then coming back as a mass opponent oh Midnight Rider, Yellow Dog. I think there was even different types of stagger leads. Like there's JYD a, did it three times. Oh, <laughs> Mister yeah. America. Like yeah. there, you, you name it, it. That is the most recycled thing in the world. Stagger would even beat Ted DiBiase for the North American title, and you think once they got in there and started calling spots, Ted would realize it's Junkyard Dog. <laughs> yeah, right. My one fun Saggerly moment was uh, there's a bit where uh, JYD is spotting Tony Atlas lifting like 550 pounds, which got, I forgot how big Tony Atlas was back in the day. But there's a bit where JYD's doing that. But in the background is Saggerly. And I had this mind blowing moment. It, it's, it's, it's like that thing where you know that Andy Kaufman was Tony Clifton, but Andy Kaufman knew that. So then he had Bob Zamuda dress up like it. And then Andy Kaufman walks out like, hey, what's going on? Uh, yep, not me. And it, apparently, Coco Beware was also staggerly to throw people off of this whole, is it really JYD bullshit? JYD was allowed to rejoin Mid South, showing back up January 22nd, 1983. That same night, Stagger was supposed to defend his North American title against DiBiase, but mysteriously wasn't there. The same thing happened the following week, so Mid-South had no choice but to strip Stagger Lee from his title. One night tournament was held March 21st to crown a new champion, and they put former tag team partners JYD and Mr. Olympia in the finals. Olympia turned hill before by hiring the services of manager Skandar Akbar, Olympia cheated to win the title, but the tapes were reviewed. The decision was reversed by Mid-South. The title was held up, leading to a Superdome extravaganza show where JYD would finally win back his belt. Also in 82, JYD would get involved in some cross-promotion matches with AWA against Nick Bockwinkle. And the one I saw had such a good Bobby Heenan spot. Uh, Heenan was Bockwinkle's manager. JYD power slams Nick and covers him, but Bobby slides into the ring and hits the mat a few times. So between that and the ref's actual count, Junkyard jumps up because he thought he hurt the three count, and that is why <laughs> that is why Heenan is the GOAT. I, I missed that one. That one's good. Uh, I, I think it's a different Bockwinkle match, but this one's good for novelty. It's gets uh, Bruce Pritchard's the ring announcer. JYD beats the scientific wrestler Nick Bockwinkle with a small package. Just because JYD wins, he gets five minutes alone with Heenan, which is good shit. And then after Bockwinkle comes in and beats down JYD with Heenan, Bruiser Brody makes the save, and you get Brody in the same ring as JYD. It's one of those all these names in one spot kind of markout stuff. It's a 6-11-82 on that one. That's good stuff to watch. As the top babyface, you know, it's only a matter of time before you lose more friends to heel turns, and JYD would have his last great Mid-South feud when Butch Reed turned on him. They'd have a series of matches for the North American Heavyweight Championship, with a lot of them being on the more hardcore side of things. Their feud was, it was one of those where him and Butch Reed were good friends, but it's time for Butch Reed to show the rest of the world I'm a man to be recognized. Junkyard Dog needs to come out and accept my challenge for the North American title. 
I haven't seen much Butch Reed stuff too, but I really appreciated all his stuff. Can we talk about the North American title itself? Because as Cornette said on Magnum TA, it went from his nipples down to his dick. It is without a doubt one of the biggest fucking belts that has ever existed. I think there's a there's a series that I read from 83 to 84 when JYD had the title. He wouldn't even bring it out or wear it because it was such a burden on him. He was like, fuck this. I'm JYD. I'm not even dealing with this stuff. But that's what some guys like. They're like, don't put the fucking belt on me. I got to fucking take this goddamn shit around. <laughs> like, please fucking... Take, get this belt off of me because it's it's so fucking heavy and I gotta carry it around. But yeah, that North American title was fucking absurd. <laughs> no wonder why Bill Watts would always book these guys that were just large lumbering individuals because you had to be a big man to hold that fucking thing. You couldn't put that belt on fucking Superstar Bill Dundee. Are you kidding me? It's about the size of Superstar Bill Dundee. In 84, Junkyard would go to Mid-Atlantic and have some matches against Dick Slater for the U.S. title. He'd do some work in WCCW in Georgia, but mostly staying in Mid-South until August of that year when Junkyard Dog would jump ship to the WWF. And that, like, ripped a hole in Mid-South. A huge hole. And for the longest time, it's always... It's always the thing that's discussed with Bill Watts. Like, well, he, he couldn't have been a racist because he's like, one of his closest friends was Ernie Ladd and he loves Junkyard Dog. And then when Junkyard Dog left, he's like, he would be like, I need the next black superstar. And a lot of people are like saying like, no, you just need a superstar. You don't have to think about it so much in race. You just need a superstar. And Hacksaw Jim Duggan's getting over. Why don't you elevate him to that spot? I'm like, nah, that guy has to be black. And, and that's why you would see, like, the Snowmans, you would see the Brickhouse Browns, you would see... And it gave a lot of guys opportunities, and that's very important, and you don't... I mean, Snowman, I don't think got a lot of opportunities past Mid-South. Brickhouse definitely benefited from a lot of that, and if he would have got his uh, brain out of his testicles, as Ernie Ladd would said, he probably would have <laughs> been a big star. But, uh, but no, like, the, just the idea of, like, just separating people according to race and... and quantifying them like you're you're a black superstar you're a black superstar as opposed to just seeing seeing it as a superstar and that's the other thing about this move for jyd going to the wwf at the time is you know people like oh well that was just vince scooping up everybody's biggest stars he was just taking bill watt's biggest star and that's what they did well maybe vince just saw like hey this guy is a he's getting over in just this louisiana area imagine if i got him on television here in new york Imagine how big of a superstar he could be, as opposed to, I'm just going to take Bill Watts' biggest star and fuck him over. As opposed to going, you know, he's getting over in this really small corner of the world. I feel like I could take him to a worldwide audience. So there's that debate as well about this. Also, too, as Brickhouse Brown has said, which, as we've said before, may not be the absolute (laughs) truth. Unreliable narrator, as they say. as As they say... Vince McMahon believed so much in JYD that he gave him like a good faith, I guess best way to say a good faith investment in giving him a briefcase full of thousands or even a million dollars for JYD to jump over, almost like a signing bonus, like come over and join yeah. me and, and, and peace out. I'm sure that a lot of it had to do the way that he left. Probably like he was a situation like, mm, I know Bill Watts is going to be pissed about this because I'm his top star, but this guy in New York City wants to make me a star, wants to put me in cartoons, puts me on national television, wants to put me in Toys R Us as an action figure form. I mean, that's... That's hard to turn down. Man. That's that's hard to turn down and, that, and, and understanding like the business of it all that, you know, yeah, sure, Mid-South was a big deal and very large promotion and covered a large ground of the United States, but Vince is talking about going worldwide, national. I mean, this is this is clearly a step up. 
and if there was some sort of discussion or if he went to bill, but it's, it's very much a shifty business and everybody's an independent contractor. I will go to this independent contractor that I want and I'll discuss for him and he'll make whatever terms with his former employer, what he needs to do and make it right. Cause every time that you've heard situations where somebody has been like, you know, I'm pretty loyal to this person and I, I would like to give them the opportunity to have me for two weeks and do what they need to do. And I drop the belt or whatever. And Vince is always acquiesced in that scenario and so i think if dog would have been like hey vince mcmahon wants me i'm gonna go do this yeah yeah but of course bill watt's reputation of just flying off the handle you dog knew how that was going to turn out so probably the best probably the best thing to do is just walk out the door because that's what a lot of the stuff when i was looking up is like back then I heard kind of conflicting, but it was basically like, if you're leaving a territory for good, give like three weeks. If you're a main eventer, give an extra two weeks so they can figure out booking and stuff and kind of job write you off to put over other guys. Yeah, get somebody but, over. Yeah, but it, it like with Vince's, you know, new monster, that old rule didn't totally apply or could apply to the situation. Well, and also to dog knew how that conversation was gonna go right yeah that, that's a good point i didn't think go about fuck that. yourself and go out the door <laughs> like, oh we just gonna do this but i just get a fuck you instead of me just doing it all right so yeah bill it would have been it's all or nothing with bill watts so right. he he knew how that was gonna go down so he was like I'm, I'm just gonna leave and not not fucking deal with this and like i said as vince it's clearly states today these are independent contractors and how you deal with your former employer is up to you and Whatever you see fit. If you want to just walk out the door, you walk out the door. Because there's a lot of blame that goes on Vince's shoulders, but it also falls on the person's shoulders who's walking out. And a lot of those guys would say something like, hey, I just can't leave them in the lurch. Can I do this or take care of this? Or can I make this happen? You look at Roddy Piper in the in the way that he was like, hey, I don't want to work in Portland for you because I want to be respectful of the Owens, Don Owens and his whole family and his promotion. So or if they need me for something for a big show, I'll come back for it. Or, you know, doing all those small things, you know, Vince w- would recognize as well. But at the same time too, there's also a lot of fear in, in that sense too, of asking that from Vince. You'd be like, well, maybe this guy's going to pull right, away this million right, dollars. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of even paranoia. I do the same thing myself. Like I'm at a point right now. I probably should ask for a few more dollars on my booking fee and I don't ask for it. No. And there's even times where I'm like in, in a situation where I'm like, Mm, I probably need to ask for a flight to make this all happen. You're just scared of that. Fuck you. We don't want you now. Yes. Yep. And I, I can imagine Junkyard Dog was in the same type of headspace that like he's going to make, oh, this guy's going to tell me fuck off. Yeah. Ooh, I really want to go do this, but this guy will t- pull the offer from me. Fuck it. I'll just go do this. Yeah. You well, know what I'm saying? And once it, in a lifetime type of opportunities like that change your life, but sometimes you kind of got to make the dick move in quotes. But but sometimes you're scared to make the right move. Yeah. And, right. and, that, and that's something I definitely feel right now and i think you know when there's that that many questions and people just kind of people just kind of walk out the door like that or go make a move like this all the conspiracy theories start happening because the information isn't out there and all you can fill those holes with all whatever narrative you want to put in there Mm -hmm. so it's always nefarious the holes that people fill in it's always something dastardly or as opposed as opposed to the fact that vince just plucked down this offer jyd wanted this offer didn't know how to talk to Bill about it because Bill is very cantankerous and he's just like, well, I'm going to go do this. Bye. <laughs> and then on the episodes that followed shortly thereafter, Bill would just bury the shit out of JYD oh, no. on Mid-South TV. He, uh, he just showed footage of Butch Reed beating him down at the Superdome. 
from what I read of people wrestling classics message board uh, present again so much good info that it was just like it, they talked about how Eric Bischoff would kind of shit talk WWF and their product it was Bill Watts shitting on WWF it's like you want to be a real dude you want to be a real tough man you want to be a real wrestler Mid-South if you want to go get your fluffy money with the Vinces up there that's where you go there so Bill really buried the shit out of him who do you think was a bigger hit to a company, Hogan leaving AWA or JYD leaving Mid-South? I think there was still a bit of climbing left to do for Hulk Hogan. Like you, that, that was where the, the glimmers, they hadn't fully capitalized on what Hulk Hogan was in AWA, where Mid-South, I think, had fully capitalized on the money of JYD. I think that's that's truly think that's that that's what it what it is is they they were they were just about ready to give Hulk that that nod. Like if Hulk would have had the belt and then had like a 6 8 8 month run with the AWA title, maybe a year with it, you know, doing top shows and all over the place in the territory, maybe uh it'd be comparable, but I mean Bill Watts had basically been Pulling leaves and pulling fruit off the JYD tree for quite some time, where I think AWA was just plucking that first orange off the tree. Uh, one little other sidebar that I thought was kind of interesting. We'll get into this in WWF, but just this pertains to the Bill Watts Superdome stuff. Um, about a year after JYD left and teamed up with Hogan, they went to the Superdome to kind of invade Bill Watts's territory. They only pulled 6,500 people at the Superdome in New Orleans where JYD was a god. And a lot of people think it was because of Bill Watts' tearing him down and people maybe feeling betrayed by JYD for leaving. So, Once JYD jumped ship to WWF, he'd hop straight on the house show loop facing the Iron Sheik, George Still, Greg Valentine, Roddy Piper. He'd tag with Sergeant Slaughter, Jimmy Snuka, Andre the Giant. To long-term JYD fans, these had to be dream matches, except for Greg Valentine. No one gives a shit if he wrestles. It's funny, over my years of being Nick's friend, there's just little peppers of just like, Nick really fucking hates Greg Valentine. <laughs> no, Greg Valentine's a dream match because Greg is half awake. <laughs> and also just looking over stuff, JYD, all the people that Nick just mentioned, JYD won every single match yeah. they brought him in they made him do what they paid him to do and that was just be the dog and beat ass and win everything go get over pal so 85 is just a monster year for junkyard dog first off wrestlemania won march 31st where he took on greg valentine for the ic belt valentine beats jyd after a thumb in the eye in the corner and he rolls him up for the three count using the ropes this brings out tito santana who gets in the ring and goes ew he cheated so the ref continues the match <laughs> outside a stunned greg valentine watches wondering if he's going to get double his booking feet if he restarts the match as he's tallying up the numbers he gets hit with a 10 count so jyd gets a wrestlemania win however not the belt JYD would also close out the first ever Saturday night's main event that aired May 11th, 85, which is a huge mainstream event. Uh, Saturday night's main events were produced by Vince and Dick Ebersol. And listen to this. He had the smallest dick Ebersol. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking uh. son of a bitch. <laughs> Jake, will you just turn the podcast off? Fucking. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fucking stop everything. <laughs> Ebersol. It's, 
So at the first ever Saturday night main event, Junkyard Dog faced the Duke of Dorchester, Pete Doherty. JYD brought his mom down to the ring because it was Mother's yeah. Day and get mom what she really wants this year, watching you in gladiator-style hand-to-hand combat. Pete, like a true hill, works JYD's mom some, and then JYD squashes him, power slam, and celebrates in the ring. We're just glossing over or celebrates in the ring when mama actually gets in the ring and dances around <laughs> with JYD is great. I just, I'm close to my mom, so just seeing JYD bring his mom in and do that, it, it kind of warmed my heart. From there, JYD continued crushing on the house show loop. He wrestled on primetime wrestling. He even won a $50,000 battle royal in September. He'd meet Terry Funk and Jimmy Hart on a Halloween-themed Saturday night's main event number three. That was November 2nd, 1985. Terry actually beat JYD when he hit him with Jimmy Hart's megaphone. And I only bring this up to mention Iron Sheik and the Batman costume is one of my all-time favorite things ever. And i just like to point out, Mr. Perfect gets a lot of credit for crazy over the cell in WWF, but Terry Funk was tailor-made for JYD's moveset, and Terry Funk's goofy-ass shooting-to-the-moon selling, it's it's in full force in this match. Junkyard would also win 1985's Wrestling Classic, beating Iron Sheik, Moondog, Spot, and Macho Man Randy Savage to do some, so they're pushing them pretty good here. Well, and also to the wrestling classic, I felt like was a test for Macho Man because he had to like go through all of these opponents. Wasn't and, that the and Dynamite see, Kid? Was that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, but the, a lot of the matches were just so short, and since it was a tournament, they're trying to get through it, but not spend too much time. I, it, this is just as much of a test for JYD as it is Macho Man to see, you know, how are you going to handle this tournament and see, are you a big enough star to get over? Can you work, you know, multiple different matches in one night? But also, too, it gives them an opportunity to show what they have to offer. And and it's only fitting at this time to see who's going to be our next superstar. And Macho Man and JYD are those two guys that they kind of peg to be those guys. And you saying that makes total sense. JYD wins by count out by just back body dropping Savage over the top rope. So they clearly didn't want to, you know, have JYD for the clean pin on Savage. So put them both over, make them both look good. Savage freaking out. Heel face. It worked out beautifully. JYD would cap off this amazing gear of 85 and roll into 86 with his likeness being used in the iconic Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling cartoon. He was voiced by James Avery, Master Shredder on Ninja Turtles, also Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's Uncle Phil. Hogan is uh, Brad Garrett, who everyone knows from Everybody Loves Raymond. Nikolai Volkov is Ron Gans, who would do voiceover work for Grindhouse trailers like Caged Heat and the Student Nurses. Superfly Jimmy Snuka was voiced by Louis Arquette, who is the father of David Arquette, Patricia Rosanna. And then, this is my favorite one, Tito Santana was voiced by Joey Pinto, who you might know as the guy in Casino that Joe Pesci stabs to death in the throat. Jake, what are you going to do this on How Did This Get Booked? It would be pop culture, so it would qualify. I was gonna say it's not subpar. This was fantastic. Yeah, it was this amazing. Was part of my fucking youth. So um, the question is, do we do one episode or an entire fucking season? So. There, I was like twenty-three episodes. Oh my god, they all revolve around like a horse or the Andre the Giant getting mistaken for a Sasquatch or uh, the, the, it's it's just amazing there, plots. There's also like uh, there was a card game or there was a board game, and at my elementary school they had it, and during playtime. Like we could, we, they'd let us play games and do whatever, like around first or second grade or whatever. Right. But they had like a rock and wrestling type game, and 
I remember they'd be like, hey, if you get your work done early, the last like half an hour of school, you can play whatever games you want. And so I would hurry up and get shit done just so I could get (laughs) to play this rocket wrestling game, which nobody wanted to play with me. And like, I would always take it like super serious. Like, no, I'll be Roddy Piper. You can be Hulk Hogan this time. And then nobody, nobody ever wanted to play with me and, and play this rock and wrestling game. Jake, this podcast is supposed to be fun. Depressing. I I mean, just the truth of my life and (laughs) how, how I live my life. I always want to be a part of wrestling, but nobody wants to join in my lonelier. (laughs) Pro wrestling is, is best explained by the Lady Gaga song Bad Romance which basically means that you love something with all of your heart and it will never ever love you back the way that you love it that is pro wrestling I just see Jake jumping off the top rope doing the Ram Jam and it cut into black (laughs) in 86 Junkyard Dog would be part of Wrestlemania 2 he was in the LA portion with Hogan where Haas Funk and Terry Funk beat JYD and Tito Santana again with Terry hitting JYD with the megaphone. Haas being Dory Funk, if people don't know, because I think I didn't know that till about a year ago. <laughs> JYD would get a shot at revenge when he teamed up with Hulk Hogan and the Haiti Kid for Saturday night's main event number six, where they took on the Funks once more. How did Hogan and JYD coming out at the same time not rip apart the sound barrier? Uh, it's something there's a sonic boom of some sort that's probably in the bloop anybody know what the bloop it's a mystery that yeah they, they were probably the bloop hulk does the jyd headbutt and i quite frankly lost my ever-loving goddamn shit <laughs> it was fantastic <laughs> and if anybody wants to hear the most politically incorrect midget jokes by bobby Heenan, <laughs> yeah. this is the match for you hogan gets the pin on terry to end this fucking awesome match it, i i loved it <laughs> it was fun In late 86 and early 87, while the Dynamite Kid was injured, JYD would help take his spot, tag-teaming with the British Bulldog to defend the belts. Also in early 87, JYD was starting to work with Harley Race at house shows on the build to WrestleMania 3. This is a feud we already talked about on part 2 of Harley, but fuck it, it's never about time to discuss Harley Race or WrestleMania 3. Their beef started when King Harley tried to make JYD bow to him at Saturday night's main event 9. Heenan jumped in the ring, attacked JYD. The ref, Danny Davis, just doesn't DQ him. This was part of like his build-up to be the big hill ref. Eventually, they rang the bell from the outside, mm. signaling that JYD got the win. Heenan beat down JYD, tries to make him bow, but he powers out, stands tall, and this all led to a loser-must-bow match at the Pontiac Silverdome, brother. And as in a promo before the match, JYD says, The dog don't bow down to no man. I only bow down to the good lord above. At WrestleMania 3, Harley beat JYD after a sneaky belly-to-belly while JYD was paying attention to the brain. After, Junkyard gives Harley a slight bow to fulfill the match stipulation, but then he clocks Harley with a chair, steals his robe, and drives out on one of those sweet-ass ring carts. One thing you really need to watch, JYD's 1987 New Year's resolution. This is a very interesting promo where JYD kind of goes shoot where he says, I'm going to abide by the rules and regulations this year. I'm going to be on time. I'm going to get no more fines. I'm going to do it right this year, baby. Which, if you know, around this time, JYD was also notoriously late, got fined for it. So, JYD throwing a little stuff in there, talks about his ex-wife. It, it's kind of awkward, funny stuff, but look that up on YouTube for sure. That's the thing, like, JYD is very lovable individual, and 
I, I hear all these stories. Like I, I know later in WCW he does this, but I think they, I've even heard stories that even as early as mid South, this was happening where like somebody was in charge of getting dog from town to town to town. He but had a also, handler. He had a handler, <laughs> yeah. but then also too, that handler had to have like a bag of like quarters because dog late night would be like, give me something out of the vending machine. <laughs> Like it's like wow. So I, I I heard that in WCW, but I think even as early as Mid South, and probably maybe during this time, or maybe in this might have been the one time where he wasn't. But uh, that was always a thing with Junkyard Dog. I mean, not to disparage him, but if you watch his career, you can kind of see when because early '80s JYD is cut and a superstar, but. I agree with Jake's whole Mid-South that probably started then because he starts to bulk up, as Bill Watts would say, around this time, and he would only kind of bulk up more as time would go on. By 88, JYD's weight gain and drug use was catching up to him, and 1988 would be a rough year for the dog. And there was foreshadowing to this when in uh, November of 87, Virgil would beat JYD at a house show in under three minutes. If that's not ominous foreshadowing, I don't know what is. What are you talking about? They're trying to push Virgil to the moon. (laughs) You understand? I mean, Virgil. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking white hot, my friend. Fuck money. I mean, they were going to make him the first African-American WWF champion. Did you not know that? Sometimes I don't know if you're being real or not. <laughs> oh, I'm being real because Virgil said that shit aloud. Oh, that's the source. Are you trying to tell me that Virgil is an unreliable no, narrator? I'm not saying any of that. I'm just going, oh. So let me get this straight. You're going to accuse Brickhouse Brown of being an unreliable narrator. <laughs> and then Virgil, an unreliable narrator. I wonder, is there a common theme here? That I'm picking up from Micah here. Oh, you, why, why are you trying to put stuff in my mouth? Uh, well, you're the one that was <laughs> just like going, rolling your eyes at Virgil. I'm I'm just merely trying to give a, a WWE superstar, bona fide WWE superstar, the credit he deserves. I feel like I'm on Twitter right now. I <laughs> <laughs> might have to cancel you from the podcast, oh my, my friend. Oh, God. I'm, I'm logging off. To kick off 88, JYD would be part of the first ever Royal Rumble January 24th in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. JYD would enter at number 20 in the only 20-man battle royal. Not a good showing for the dog. He lasted about two and a half minutes, eliminated no one before getting tossed out by Ron Bass. And then who won, guys? Who won? Oh! There you go. At uh, WrestleMania 4, JYD would be part of the you're not in the tournament for the belt battle royal he would <laughs> make it to the final three before getting double teamed by hills bret hart and bat news brown he gets tossed out by the two of them and then bat news wins gotta give a little love jyd punches harley out of the battle royal so damn right JYD would be part of SummerSlam 88, which is also the first ever SummerSlam. He'd take on Rick Rude, and this match is more about Rick's feud with Jake the Snake than it is about a match with Junkyard, but Rick does wear those sweet-ass JYD face pants. Which he strips down to show the Cheryl Roberts pants. It's it's inception of Rick Rude airbrush stuff. Cheryl being painted all over Rick's junk brings out Jake the Snake, who runs out and attacks Rick, giving the DQ win to rick over junkyard following SummerSlam, jyd would pretty much lose out the rest of his run before he left the company in october of 88 after leaving wwf junkyard would head to nwa which was just about to become wcw he'd show up on december 7th 88 at clash of champions 4 
Ivan Koloff was wrestling against your boy, Paul Jones, with one hand yeah. tied behind his back. Ivan beat Paul, which brought out the Russian assassins to attack Ivan, but out comes Junkyard Dog, chain in hand, to save the day. This led to a match at Starcade 88, where JYD teamed up with Ivan to beat the Russian assassins with their manager, Paul Jones. Just a little shout-out to JYD. At this time, he uh, attempts a standing Kimura lock and does a roll-up pin attempt. He, he does some scientific stuff, even for 88. JYD's still doing it. He just ain't punching. Junkyard spent 89 teaming up with Ivan and his old rival, Michael Hayes, against the Russian assassins. And speaking of old rivals, on April 2nd, 89, JYD faced Bush Reed at Clash of the Champions 6 in New Orleans, Raging Cajun. And this is that cool entrance you've probably seen a million times of Junkyard walking down to the ring with the band behind him. Yeah, it's good stuff. Also, you can see, like, it's not amazing work between Butch and JYD, but you can see the familiarity that they have through all the work they did together. And it's you can tell they know their stuff, they know their spots. It's like riding a bike, they get back into it. Is it pretty common, Jake, if there's someone you maybe haven't wrestled in, say, eight years, but you know their stuff, you can fall right back into it pretty easy? Yeah, absolutely. And you're always trying to figure out how do we get back to the hair cream. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to circle back to that. <laughs> Next for JYD would be a run with Ric Flair wrestling over the World Heavyweight Championship with a match of them building to Clash of Champions 11, which ends in a DQ when Ole attacks Junkyard. Which Flair has been very critical about these matches, and we asked him about that in the shoot interview we did with him at HighSpots.com, and he clarified. He goes, he goes, he goes, people think I have a problem with Junkyard Dog. That's not the case. Like, the Junkyard Dog I would have liked to wrestle is the one that was ha- in Mid-South or, like, early WWF. Like, that's the type of Junkyard Dog where by the time that he gets to here, he's not the same Junkyard Dog. And he felt that because he had that run in New York with Vince, they were trying to, like, push him into the spotlight so quick when really, like, he wasn't the type of superstar that he used to be, so Flair felt very frustrated by some of these matches and trying to make it work. And he's just like, "This is this is not the same junkyard dog." Yeah. I know you're. I know marquee wise, you think it is, but but it's not match quality wise. It's not. But he's like, I never had a problem with junkyard dog. I wish you know when he was there in Bill Watts, like that's the junkyard dog that I would have wanted to wrestle here in '88, but that was not the case. And doing research for this, you hear these matches get just destroyed. Meltzer craps all over them, pretty much anyone who comments does. I watched the Clash of the Champions 11 match, and I had a good damn time, man. I actually, it's a fun fucking match. It's not what it could be, but JYD does what he can. There's one spot where uh, Flair drops down, and he thinks JYD's going to hop over him for a kind of a leap over. JYD doesn't. Flair looks to the wrong way. JYD's on all fours, and then headbutts the shit out of Flair. It's a legit great spot that I didn't see coming it's it's not that great but it is a lot of fun i don't think it gets or it deserves all the hate that it gets and jyd at the beginning he's kind of getting booed but he still has it in him he wins the crowd over and by the end of the match they are rabid for jyd to beat flair he's past his prime but you can still see the glimmers of how good he was and how much he could easily turn a switch and make everybody love him JYD would then be part of the short-lived Dudes with Attitudes faction with Sting, Paul Orndorff, Lex Luger, and Elegante. And if you're sleeping on our Giant Gonzalez episode, you're wrong. They would end up facing the Horsemen at 90s Great American Bash with the match ending over that stupid-ass rule where if you get thrown over the top, it's a DQ. Oh my god, it's the worst rule ever. 
the one thing that I want to get to also associate with the dudes with attitude was a dude by the name of Rocky King. Jake, is there anything on Rocky King? Because I had no clue who Rocky King was. And then I Wikipedia at his ass, and I was like, "No, um, you put some fucking respect <laughs> to Rocky King's fucking name." Because I, I could literally go for another ten minutes on on Rocky King, and but we don't have the time for that. We'll do it some other time. But look him up. He's got a shoot interview. Homeless man turned working with the Horsemen. I mean, it, it's a great story. On February seventeenth, ninety-one, JYD would win his first title, teaming up with Ricky Morton and Tommy Rich to win the Six Men Tag Team Championship. Do you guys remember this shit at all? Yeah, it was mostly so Dusty could have a belt with the Road Warriors. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm mistaken. That's that's what I always envision it being. It's just the idea of a six-man tag team title. I think Ring of Honor is doing it right now. Really? Wow. Or at least they did not too long ago. I mean, that's it's something different. It's it's more belts. As much as people bitch about tag team wrestling and the fact that you have to split now a main event payoff between four guys, you know, ta- you know, tag team wrestling being in the main event, you know, you got to split that main event payoff four ways now. And then also too, like as a promoter, you're not just paying two guys for the main event you're paying four guys for the main event so that's a little bit more difficult imagine now adding two more guys on top of that and now you see why you don't have a lot of six-man tags so that's the reason the belts only existed for 10 months yep (laughs) jyd would also begin a short feud with the master blasters and tag team matches and even some singles matches against your boy master blaster steel how many WCW gimmicks did Kevin Nash fucking have, Jake? Well, I mean, <laughs> listen, he can have as many as he wants because once he became the man in Diesel and Kevin Nash, and he can do whatever the fuck he wants and most specifically be my best friend. I mean, that's <laughs> the man can do what he wants. It was, this, is, this is the comeuppance. Keep in mind, when he was doing Master Blaster Steel, he's just a few short years away from being the fucking man. So... You can hate on him all you want, but you're basically seeing him have uh, wrestling training before your very eyes. That's how amazing he is and how confident he is as an individual. He is willing to suck in front of you guys for a couple of years before he becomes quite possibly the most recognizable professional wrestler in the entire industry. Wow. I have never seen Jake look more like a professor than I did when I looked at him while he said all that. After 91's Great American Bash Tour, JYD would take some time off, making his return February of 92 at Super Brawl 2. Ron Simmons had just beat Cactus Jack, which is where $5 Wrestling's Blackdish Jack had to have had the epiphany. Abdullah the Butcher comes down to double-team Ron with Foley. Through the crowd, you see JYD dressed like a school chaperone at a dance. He hops to the ring. It's amazing. He uh, screams, save room for Jesus, before clearing out the ring. As Ron and JYD stand tall, Jim Ross goes, it's like fighting in the hood. And out loud to no one on my couch, I said, oh, dear. In the fall of 92, JYD would go back to Memphis to win their unified heavyweight title from Eddie Gilbert before dropping it to Butch Reed. So kind of a cool poetic circle to go back to Memphis to feud with Butch Reed. By April 93, had formed a new tag team with Jim Neidhart and began a feud with Dick Slater and Paul Orndorff. And that would last a few months. But after defeating Slater on July 28th, 93, JYD left WCW. 
And we we kind of ragged on how his weight got out of control and everything. But if you look at, say, 90, 91 JYD and then look at 93, dude seriously got inspired or motivated at some point because he got back in real... It's not, you know, obviously early 80s JYD, but 1993 with Neidhart stuff, he is back in pretty damn good shape. The gut goes down. He's looking good. You can tell he really cared. After WCW, JYD worked the independence. He wrestled for NWA Dallas in 95. He wrestled for National Wrestling Conference in Vegas, where he had matches against Iron Sheik, Mr. Hughes, and Honky Tonk Man. In 98, he showed up at ECW. <laughs> However, he wasn't wrestling at uh, ECW's Wrestlepalooza after the chair swinging freaks took on candido and let storm ecw paid tribute to some wrestling legends bob armstrong dick slater mass superstar and jyd who came out to a massive pop and big jyd chants and it also needs to be said after joey introduced everyone and everybody walked back off the crowd came back around and did another jyd chant so he was over like hell yet again Sadly, this would be Junkyard Dog's last televised appearance. Tragically, Sylvester Ritter died on June 1st, 1998 in a single car accident on Interstate 20 near Forest, Mississippi. He was returning home from his daughter Latoya's high school graduation in Wadesboro, North Carolina. It's just a brutal, sad story. With an even sadder footnote, Latoya passed away at 31 of a heart attack. Yeah, it was so random and horrible to hear man and if you want to make the story even sadder if i'm not mistaken i heard this from eric watts and he said that the car that jyd died in was a car that bill watts gave to junk Dog. but he got 1500 to 2000 people of wadesboro that came out to his funeral so it wasn't all sad there was a lot of love and a lot of support for jyd Ending on uh, a, a slightly happier note, his daughter Latoya would be at 2004's WWE Hall of Fame to represent JYD as he was inducted by Ernie Ladd. <laughs> the Illuminati. He is the Illuminati, and the sooner we realize that, the better off we'll know how to counteract it. Have we ever talked about how fucking insane 2004 Hall of Fame is? First off, Pete Rose. Then JYD, Harley Race, Jesse the Body, Tito, Sergeant Slaughter, Superstar Billy Graham, Greg Valentine, Big John Studd, Don Morocco, and Bobby Goddamn Heenan. That is back when Hall of Famers were Hall of Famers and also Greg Valentine. <laughs> and all of them were inducted by Ernie Ladd. <laughs> That's right, Ernie Ladd. They probably wish they would have kind of spaced them out better so they'd have more for yeah. the years coming forward, but Jesus. All right, final thoughts on the great junkyard dog. My earliest memory of professional wrestling is of a match for a long time. I couldn't figure out what the match was. Like, all I remember from it is the junkyard dog was in it. And the thing that I remember the most, because it was kind of during a period in time where the WWF was getting away from using, or was, was able to use copyrighted music. And the junkyard dog came out to another one bites the dust by Queen. And I remember this wide shot of an arena, and then that song played, and then the junkyard dog came out and stood, and everybody stood up. And I remember that being like the most unbelievable, amazing thing I've ever seen before in my entire life. And I remember being a child going, Whoa, what's this? Because I don't know what pro wrestling was. I go, What's this? And how can I get that type of reaction? 
just walk in through a room and people just stand up with <laughs> yeah. music playing in the background. This is the most incredible thing ever. And I, and for the longest time, I thought it was Junkyard Dog versus the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. Because my parents said, like, hey, we, we, you know, recorded some wrestling or we have a ta- uh, VHS tape of some wrestling and you should see it. And I always felt like it was something that was recorded like the night before and they were showing it to me because they just got a VCR and they were messing around with recording. And they're like, oh, well, we'll show our son pro wrestling. That seems to be pretty popular right now. So looking at the timeline of when it possibly could have happened and what it was, I'm almost 100 percent sure it was Junkyard Dog versus Terry Funk. Saturday night's main event and that was the first ever exposure to professional wrestling I ever had (laughs) Well, it was that match and Junkyard Dog was a part of that exposing me to professional wrestling I know Colt has gone on record and said that Junkyard Dog was a big part of his early fandom as well and you know there's a lot of people that became Hulkamaniacs obviously or Hulk was their way in but for me most specifically Junkyard Dog was like the way in and I don't know if I'd be a pro wrestler today if Junkyard Dog wouldn't have been as over or as popular as he was or if I wouldn't have saw something as incredible as people just fanning over his superstardom. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be a pro wrestler today if it wasn't for Junkyard Dog, and that's that's why I'm always thankful and I always smile every time I think about him. And they play it a lot during a lot of videos when they recap the years of like WWE where just that shot of Jenko dog with the, the crown and the cape and him smiling all big with like <laughs> this, this wonderful look on his face when he's feuding with Harley race and just how lovable of an individual he is and beloved. And I remember doing this wrestling show in the Eastern part of the state of North Carolina and we were driving through Wadesboro and we, we were talking about Junkyard Dog, and I was riding with the promoter, and the promoter goes, man, if the Junkyard Dog was alive today, I'd book him on every single show I ran, just to show up, you know, take pictures, sign autographs, just show up and make people feel good. He goes, goes, I'd pay him for every single show that I ran. I think that's the true, you know, sad thing about him not being around, is that we don't get an opportunity to tell him how much we love him, and I Obviously, never get to tell him or thank him for being a part of my first ever exposure to professional wrestling. I definitely remember Junkyard Dog, and I remember liking him a lot when I was younger. But he's definitely one of those guys, like, I remember the character, the persona Junkyard Dog more than, like, you know, him. I guess that's kind of his legacy. If there is an opening Mm. to attack JYD, it's probably his ring work. But think about it. He went down to the ring to a Hogan-like pop, did some punches, some headbutts, a power slam, juked and barked, was out of there in nine minutes, left to another thunderous standing ovation, got paid all the monies. You, you, you don't need a springboard hurricanrana when you are a god by just doing what you do. I think, I think there's something very special about being that over. It's not something you just do. Uh, he filled the Superdome without the WWE machine behind him. He he had something about him that just made him like you just he was just you loved him just for nothing. He was just walking down the street and people would be like that. That's someone. And I think that is exactly how he'll be remembered. Well liked over as hell. Never forgotten. I think even to this day and well beyond it, the downtown municipal auditorium and WGNO channel 2026 in New Orleans will always belong to the junkyard dog for tons of people. Nick touched on it, but it's 
he filled up the Superdome by himself. He was part of the organization. They didn't have to bring in the NWA champ or bring somebody in to pop the territory. All they needed was the dog. And he did like 20, 30,000 stuff at the Superdome repeatedly. I mean, just hearing about it, it really does boggle my mind. And it's like Nick said, I'm just stealing more stuff from him. But it's just like he didn't do too much in the ring. But when he did it, it meant something. And his charisma was through the roof and off the charts. Many people don't know this one either. Arn Anderson credits him with his first big break in the business. So who knows if Arn Anderson exists without JYD. It was, it was so fun to watch. And there's that bittersweet stuff when you watch him now. Because just he was incredible. And he captivated the hell out of an entire state for years i mean he was a like i said a folk hero in louisiana and it's just the junkyard dog was just incredible i wish i wish he'd still be around man because he still could have been killing it all right this is jyd's 10 bell pod find us at 10bellpod.com come talk to us at social media at 10 bell pod I'll do this whole spiel one last time. We're doing ads for the show now. Someone has to pay for Tent's drug habit. We'll try to keep them short and fun, but it's just a thing we're doing now. If ads bother you, we are offering ad-free episodes, $1 at Patreon. And I know about those 15-second ahead buttons. You could yeah, you, you skip that shit. I don't care. Um, <laughs> if you want to help... 10 bell pod for 0.00 dollars just leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening tell a friend seriously means a lot all right well for zane riley i'm jake manning and this has been another edition of how did this get booked This is Jimmy James PP Cornette here, and I know you're too busy buying AEW shirts for your mom and your grandma and everybody because you gotta get everybody in the family watching the AEW to get the ratings up to beat NXT. But if you could just go to Patreon and give them 10 Bell Pod Boys some money, I know they'd appreciate it because they actually do real moves and they know how to work a match unlike these, these spot monkeys. So quit buying AEW shirts and give 10 Bell Pod some money. Wendy's.